Hello and welcome to episode 237 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Terrence M. Stanton. We are recording on Monday, July 11th, 2022. At the top of the show, I want to congratulate a truly great champion, Novak Djokovic, on winning Wimbledon, and more importantly, for avoiding the satanic, mysterious liquids that people have been injecting into their bodies. He took a stand. He said no. They kicked him out of Australia. They probably won't let him play in the U.S. Open, but he won Wimbledon. God bless you, Mr. Djokovic, for your courageous stand. You have become my favorite professional athlete, and you are not going to regret avoiding this uh, experimental and horrifying so-called gene therapy, which is killing and maiming more and more people throughout the world. Great job, Novak. Continuing in the month of July, dedicated to praising, loving, worshiping the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look at the seven bloodsheddings of our Savior from the book Devotion to the Precious Blood by Father M.F. Walls, which was initially published in 1925. The circumcision, excuse me, the circumcision. Jesus is come to save his people from their sins. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He is come to conquer sin and death. And this is why his garment is sprinkled with blood. From first to last, from swaddling clothes to shroud, the purpose of his coming is to take away the sins of the world. It is declared today when his name is called Jesus. And it is made all the more evident when that most holy name is steeped in his precious blood, enriched with those ruby drops. He has come to save sinners, and so from the first he puts on the form of a sinner, will be treated as one, and therefore fulfills all justice by this baptism of blood, as later on he will receive John's baptism of water. Therefore, the child is circumcised. That is, the sinless Savior submits to the appointed right whereby the forgiveness of original sin is conveyed to the souls of his people until his new rite and more perfect sacrament of baptism shall displace it. When he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast given me. Then said I, Behold, I come to do thy will, O God. But how does he say this? Does this infant speak? Ah, no. Those lovely lips utter no word. And though the babe is the word of God, he is unheard. Still the infant saith the predicted words, for he speaks with the voice of blood. And the blood of the babe of Bethlehem speaks better things than the blood of Abel. He knows that he actually lies on the straw of the stable's manger. And like a little lamb, he will offer these blood drops of the circumcision as a pledge of the total shedding of his blood when he shall come to die in Calvary. Love of Christ, who shall measure thee? Impatient to begin the bloodsheddings, reluctant to leave off, the first and the last unnecessary for our redemption, yet necessary to thy prodigal generosity. The second shedding of blood, the agony in the garden. The second bloodshedding took place in the Olive Garden of Gethsemane. 
and devout souls are summoned thither to behold the drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. I am come into my garden, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh. Canticles 5.1 He who did no sin begins to feel sadness, dejection, and fear. Grief oppresses him. Woe transfigures him and transforms his very features. He clothes himself with shame and sorrow, as he might put on the garb of a criminal, being about to die a criminal's death. And thus he appears before his father, fearful and ashamed. The penitent, the man of sorrows, and with love and deep contrition, full of pain and heartbreaking anguish, he falls prostrate, and in mental sadness hides his sacred face upon the ground. Tomorrow his body will be fastened, motionless and bleeding, on the cross. Now it is his soul that is wounded and crucified. The sorrows of death, its chills, and its clammy sweat inundate the prostrate form of Jesus. My soul is sorrowful even unto death. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Jeremiah twenty two twenty nine. O earth, cover not thou my blood. Job sixteen nineteen. His agony increases. He is poured out like water. Psalm twenty one fifteen. Only the plenteous sweat is no longer like water but like drops of blood trickling on the ground. His head is filled with dew and his locks with the dews of night only. His head and whole body are bedewed and drenched with blood. Blood oozes from every pore. His long garments are soaked with blood. The thick woolen texture cannot absorb it. The cold night air cannot clot it. It gushes forth again and again at the throbs and beats of his agonized heart and trickles, ever trickles to the ground till he is lying in a pool of blood. I have trodden the winepress alone. Isaiah 63, 3. The scourging. Two of the soldiers place themselves on either side of Jesus. The crowd falls back to give them room. The garments, whose very fringe gives health, are trampled underfoot. The hands that have bestowed blessings and alms and absolutions are bound, and the shoulders of the good shepherd where his lost sheep will be laid so lovingly and carried so gently, await the first stroke of the scourge. In an instant, the rods are raised. There is a shrill sound as the air is cut, then a sharp, loud report, as though something cracks or breaks. Alas, it is the first blow on the shoulders of Christ as the red blood springs out to testify. The frame of Jesus quivers, for it is exquisitely sensitive, but his face remains unchanged. Again and again they strike, more and more recklessly maddened by the patient calmness of that uplifted countenance. I have been scourged all the day. Psalm seventy-two, fourteen. The wicked hath wrought upon my back. They have prolonged their iniquity. Psalm 128, 3. For I am ready for scourges, and my sorrow is continually before me, his sorrow for our sins. So with a new sound that startles the ears of his horrified mother, the whistling chords sweep from right to left and from left to right to be embedded in mangled flesh. Blood pours from the widening wounds. Sometimes it falls heavily and slowly on the pavement, like the big drops of rain before thunder. Sometimes it is heard fast dripping and trickling like the shower from the eaves of houses or the water from the roofs of rocky caves. There lie the long white whips of steel-like sinews. These are seized. The victim is paler. His lips are parched and cracked and parted to breathe the hot air. His tongue is swollen. 
he nerves and steadies himself for what is to come. Still more rejoicingly does the dear blood of God leap forth. He looks like one flayed alive, whose flesh is cut to shreds. Finally, the fastenings are severed, and Jesus falls into a pool of his own blood, then slowly rises to his knees, and with excruciating suffering, draws the seamless tunic over his mangled flesh, and conceals the fearful evidence of their cruelty and of his own brave, generous love. The Crowning with Thorns Terrible, as were the ruffians when in earnest, they are more terrible in their jest. Conceive the torture when the head of Jesus is seized, held with rough, irreverent grasp, and then encircled and fitted with a crown, not of flowers, but alas, of sharpest thorns. Careful not to hurt themselves, they are callous to his anguish, and heedless of the hot blood which gushes out over their hands and garments. But we must watch every drop, for this is the beginning of the fourth bloodshedding. Blood pours down the face and neck of Jesus. Blood reddens the green crown. Beads of blood hang like berries upon its spikes. Blood fastens and glues together the long locks that fall on his shoulders. Blood drops on the tattered, faded cloak and dyes it a purple that is truly royal and divine. Blood crimsons the bench, which serves for a throne, and the wall and the marble pavement around his feet. But his brutal tormentors care not either for his blood or his pain. They only mock the more rudely and savagely as they thrust into his patient hand the reed scepter and begin the dastardly outrage of their mock homage and adoration. O man of sorrows, with thy beautiful countenance hidden and despised in faith and love we bend the knee and adore. We hail thee, King of kings. Jesus came forth bearing the crown of thorns and the purple garment. Pilate, in a last effort to save him from the Jews, brings him forth that all may see and pity him. Behold the man. And still the red blood gathers on the thorns, and it falls on the pavement where he stands. And the crown grows redder. Nor king, nor emperor has ever worn one so royal, so rich, so precious. The evangelists tell us that when they took Jesus and led him forth, the purple garment was taken from our Lord and replaced by his own. But they do not mention any removal of the crown of thorns. He kept it and so went forth to die. His mother saw that death garland upon the victim's brow when he halted before her on the road to the place of sacrifice. The Way of the Cross The history of the Passion of our Lord is written in his precious blood, and even in the passing from pain to pain, one of the blood sheddings takes place. The soldiers take their purple garment off our Lord and clothe him again in his own. But why does the precious blood, which has been falling so fast and plenteously, now hide itself out of sight? The purple robe was soaked with it and died anew, and unlike his own garment being rent and ragged, it covered but few of his bleeding wounds, and now so little of that blood is seen. Ah, the precious blood has been misunderstood, has been blasphemed. By a miracle of malice, they have changed God's richest blessing into a dreadful anathema. They have taken the blood of Christ on themselves and on their unhappy children. They have invoked their own reprobation and damnation. The first blood which moistens the cross is that left by the lips of Jesus, for he gives it a kind and gentle kiss of peace, a divine reconciliation he will effect between justice and mercy. This is he that comes to us by water and blood, John 5, 6. He comes to us by blood, 
For through the weight of the cross, his many wounds are made to bleed afresh. At every step, blood gushes from his veins. It steals down beneath the garments till it bathes his faltering feet, till it reaches the ground to be trampled on and hidden in dust and sand. And yet it will not be wholly hidden. For it has a purpose, this bloodshedding of the way of the cross. The path is now being marked out by which the kingdom of heaven must be stormed. Up this toilsome road, the soldiers of the Lord are to press on till doomsday, following their captain and king. O fainting, feeble, bleeding crossbearer, how wilt thou accomplish thy task of beating down the gates of hell and setting wide for the blessed the gates of paradise? Thou who seemest too weak to perform even the least part thereof, too exhausted to carry that cross any further on the road, in sanguinameo, in my blood, the crucifixion. Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Hebrews thirteen twelve. The executioners order him to go to the cross and place himself upon it, that they might see where to make the holes to receive the nails. This mark is not necessary. No golden reed for measurement is needed here. For his own blood has itself marked out all the length and breadth that his body and arms will require. Until death part them, he will not leave his cross, not even when they dare to come down. For see how he has embraced it and testified his love by endowing it with these rich ruby jewels of his most precious blood. And now a soldier selects a nail. It is long and strong, but neither smooth nor sharp pointed. Slowly and deliberately, he puts the nails upon the palm of the open hand of Jesus. In spirit, Mary kisses that gracious hand, which she will never again see. As for three and thirty years, she had seen it without a wound. They have dug into his left hand. They have opened the first of the Savior's five fountains. But the blood of redemption comes only slowly forth past the great nail and the bruised lips of the wound. The ready right hand is fitted with another huge spike. And this with repeated blows is also struck into the quivering nerves and muscles. The soldiers now seize the sacred feet and through both a long nail by dint of redoubled blows is sent on its crashing, rending way into the cross. Four fountains now are dug and Jesus is crucified. The red blood pours out rejoicingly and running down from hands and feet, bathes alike both crucified and cross. For three long hours, the saving stream flows on, at one time slowly, as the chills and languor of death prevail, at another time fast and hot, as the love of the sacred heart urges it forth. Its very panting assists the sixth bloodshedding. Even as in his divinity, Jesus has emptied himself to take the form of ours, so in generous emulation with his human nature, will his human nature empty itself and pour out every drop of its lifeblood like water in Jerusalem. O Redeemer, we accept thy boon, but we receive it weeping. The piercing of the sacred heart. Is it not enough that the Lamb of God is slain? To attack the body of Jesus is to crucify him again, to trample under the foot of, excuse me, to trample under foot the Son of God, and to esteem the blood of the Testament unclean, Hebrews 10, 29. One of the soldiers raises a spear and thrusts it violently into the dead body of Jesus. So savagely is the spear thrust given 
that the side of our Lord is opened and the sacred heart is pierced and immediately there came forth blood and water. The fifth fountain of the Savior is dug. It is the seventh bloodshedding. Naturally, no result would have followed this stroke of the lance, which God in his patience permitted and did not punish on the spot. Naturally, even were there some few drops in life's final stronghold, the heart, they would not flow when life was ended. But behold, blood, bright, red, glorious, and triumphant blood leaps forth, and not blood alone, but water, pure, fresh, and sparkling water comes forth. It is true blood. It is true water, a portent and prodigy, a miracle so astounding that in relating it, the evangelist reminds us he was there, an eyewitness, and he is inspired to pledge his personal veracity and attestation of the mysterious event. He sees the sacred body, and well may he think that every drop of the precious blood is shed. Like mountain springs and streams in the burning summer tide, each fountain of the Savior is dry, and the red blood darkens and hardens round the edge of his wounds and the seams of the scourging. Yet Jesus is not content, for now in death the holy head of Jesus bends down towards his side, as if to point out more of his treasures. No one could dream that he who has been so prodigal still has treasures left. A sealed and secret fountain, a hidden store of sweetest blood to bestow after death as a legacy of love. Dearest Lord, thy last miracle is like thy first. Thou hast kept the best wine until now. John 2.10 You shall draw waters with joy out of the Savior's fountains. Isaiah 12.3 Thus are the seven bloodsheddings completed. Thus is prophecy fulfilled. An extract from The Blood of the Lamb by Digby Best. So ends the reading. That is difficult to read. We can't possibly imagine the supernatural suffering, the divine suffering that our Lord went through for each and every one of us. Every drop of his blood is infinitely precious, and he shed all of it for us. He left absolutely nothing back. He saw every sin ever committed or ever will be committed. And in agony, he gave up everything for us. Dr. Ralph Martin talks about making a commitment to not want to offend the Lord, even in the slightest thing. Well, I can certainly see where he's coming from after reading this. And we can't even grasp uh, at, at all, not even a glimpse of what Jesus went through for us. But having some little knowledge reading that passage, just the, the tiniest glimpse even though it's unfathomable of the suffering that he went through, that should convict each and every one of us. It certainly convicts me to not want to offend the Lord, even in the slightest thing. Jesus, please give us the grace not to offend you in even the slightest thing. Let's move on to Plinio Correa de Oliveira and the Reign of Mary. 
is the section we'll be reading today from the book, Plinio Correa de Oliveira, Prophet of the Reign of Mary, by Professor Roberto DiMattei. I highly recommend you picking up a copy of this book, as well as Devotion to the Precious Blood by Father Walls. The text begins, More than from theological considerations, the unshakable confidence Plinio Correa de Oliveira always expressed in the social queenship of Mary was born from a careful analysis in the light of grace of the society in which he lived. From his very early youth, he was certain that modern society was going to collapse and that a Christian society had to be restored on its ruins. In his early 20s, in a letter to Jose Pedro Galvo de Souza in 1929, he wrote, I have an ever-growing impression that we are on the threshold of an epoch fraught with suffering and struggles. The suffering of the church becomes more intense everywhere, and the battle draws ever closer. I have the impression that clouds are gathering on the political horizon. The storm, of which a world war will be a mere preface, will not take long in coming. But this war will spread such confusion all over the world that revolutions will arise in every corner, and the putrefaction of this sad 20th century will reach its peak. Then the forces of evil, which appear like worms when putrefaction culminates, will arise. The whole of society will emerge, and the church will be persecuted everywhere. But, at ego dico tibi quia tu as petrus, et super hanc petram, idificabo ecclesiam meam, et portai inferi non prevalibunt adversus eam. As a consequence, Either we will have a new Middle Ages or we will have the end of the world. Rather than imitate the apostles who slept on the Mount of Olives as Jesus was about to be arrested, we must watch and pray. Behold our main task. Prepare ourselves for the fight and prepare the church like a sailor who readies the ship before the storm. In the message of Fatima, Plinio found confirmation of what his intellect and faith showed him. But he found it even before that in the extraordinary predictions of St. Louis de Montfort, who in his treatise on the true devotion speaks of a happy time when the divine Mary will be established mistress and queen of hearts and will rule over society through the hearts and minds of men. It was above all from the consecration of Mary, lived according to the method of St. Louis de Montfort, that Plinio drew the notion of the reign of Mary as the climax of the victorious battle of the counter-revolution. For him, the queenship of Mary, like that of Christ, is not metaphorical. And he was convinced that before the end of the world and the kingdom of Antichrist, history will see an era of renewal he calls the reign of Mary, an historical era of faith and virtue, which will be inaugurated with a special victory of Our Lady over the revolution. In that era, the devil will be expelled and returned to the infernal dens, and Our Lady will reign over humanity, by means of the institutions she has selected for this. In the preface to the Argentine edition of Revolution and Counter-Revolution, he explains that the queenship of Mary, associated with that of Jesus, should not be seen as a merely decorative title. Although she is totally submissive to the will of God, the royalty of Our Lady implies an authentic power of personal government. The reign of Mary is nothing more than the triumph of the Church, founded by our Lord Jesus Christ and the epigee of Christian civilization resulting from the merits of his passion. This triumph is necessary 
in history to enable man who has a social nature to render to God in time all the glory that the angels and the blessed will give him in eternity. As the angelic doctor teaches, if man is a social being by nature, he is obviously called not only to his personal sanctification, but to sanctification in society. Indeed, the glory of God, which is the end of creation, cannot be merely individual and implicit, but must be public and social. Humanity should glorify God, not only in its individual components, but also in its collective life, because God created and redeemed man also in his social nature. Hence, peoples also, communities and states, must recognize the kingship of Jesus and Mary. If human history should fail to attain this summit of social perfection, the glory of God, which is the ultimate purpose of creation, would be diminished. God is always victorious, and his triumph should shine on earth as it is in heaven, in time and eternity. Plinio writes, The reign of Mary is an order of things that we consider particularly from the temporal aspect but whose essence is a spiritual epigee of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, whereby Our Lady attains supreme power upon souls, which is the greatest glory in history after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reign is the full compliance of the human order with the natural order established by God and the supernatural order instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. The state of affairs that the devil seeks to impose is the opposite of that, Our Lady's is a luminous, jubilant, triumphal reign full of memories of all the struggles the Catholic faithful went through, all the weaknesses that all men carry within themselves, and much more still. Characteristic of the reign of Mary will be the holiness of the men and institutions that compose it. The reign of Mary, properly speaking, is a holy society, not one made up exclusively of saints, but a society where the number of saints is exceptionally large in relation to the general flow of history. The reign of Mary will be the most brilliant epoch of history, but after a period of splendor, it will see decay, sin, and God's punishment. That punishment will be the end of the world and the reign of the Antichrist. My dear friends, I believe we are living in the beginning stages of the reign of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I know it doesn't seem like that in the world, or the church for that matter, but something was put into effect in March. Something was started by that consecration. I know it wasn't perfectly done as some traditional Catholics would like, but the important thing was Russia was mentioned by name, consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the Pope and all the bishops of the world. That's enough, in my humble opinion. And I believe that the Blessed Mother, because of that, will now work in extraordinary ways. Let us watch and let us pray. As Dr. DiMattei says, pray the rosary every single day. And in the coming weeks and the coming months, we are going to see the Blessed Mother work in a manner we wouldn't have thought possible. And the Lord is going to work miracles through the Immaculate Heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she is going to triumph. Oremos. Prayer for the hastening of the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, Holy Mother of God and our tender mother, look upon the distress in which the whole of mankind is living due to the spread of materialism, godlessness, and the persecution of the Catholic faith. In our own day, the mystical body of Christ is bleeding from so many wounds caused within the church 
by the unpunished spread of heresies, the justification of sins against the sixth commandment, the seeking of the kingdom of earth rather than that of heaven, the horrendous sacrileges against the most holy Eucharist, especially through the practice of communion in the hand and the Protestant shaping of the celebration of the Holy Mass. Amidst these trials appeared the light of the consecration of Russia to thine immaculate heart by the Pope in union with the world's bishops. In Fatima, thou didst request the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month. Implore thy divine son to grant a special grace to the Pope that he might approve the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. May Almighty God hasten the time when Russia will convert to Catholic unity. Mankind will be given a time of peace and the church will be granted an authentic renewal in the purity of the Catholic faith, the sacredness of divine worship, and the holiness of Christian life. O Mediatrix of all graces, O Queen of the Most Holy Rosary and our sweet Mother, turn thine eyes of mercy towards us and graciously hear this, our trusting prayer. Amen. Prayer of St. Alphonsus Liguri for a Happy Death St. Joseph, by that assistance which Jesus and Mary gave you at death, I beg you to protect me in a special way at the hour of my death, so that dying assisted by you in the company of Jesus and Mary, I may go to thank you in heaven, and in your company, sing God's praises for all eternity. Amen. By thy pure and immaculate conception, O Mary, obtain for me the conversion of Russia, Spain, Portugal, Europe, the United States, Canada, and the whole world. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis, sancti Joseph, terra daimonem, ora pro nobis. In nomina patris, et fili, et spiritus sancti. Amen. Thank you very kindly, my friends, for listening to episode 237 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. In your charity, please share this podcast with everyone you know. Kindly follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Fatima Podcast. And above all else, pray for the eternal salvation of Pope Francis and do not offend the Lord even in the slightest thing. Goodbye and God love you.